Word to Matthew chapter 12 once again. Matthew 12. You know, I, week after week, I just catch myself kind of shaking my head at the, all the verbal sparring that goes on in our land, all the, the backbiting and slander and accusations, whether that's on national news media outlets or social media or in blogs. It, it's just staggering at times. We have become a people who are quick and, and quite proficient at responding to accusations of others so quickly or uh, so um, aggressively that we are able to level those accusations or intensify them and elevate them towards those who are making accusations and spinning it around on them. We are good at responding in like manner is the bottom line. So that those who might attack us or accuse us or seek to destroy us, we've learned very quickly to try to anticipate that and to do it to them first. Our passage last week in Matthew 12, if you would recall, 1 through 14 is where we were, and it was Jesus teaching on the Sabbath and, and kind of an example that Matthew gave us of how Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light coming out of Matthew 11, and then we had the example of of what that looked like, particularly in regard to the Sabbath. At the very end of the passage, we were reminded of the Pharisees coming and seeking to level accusations against Christ, and it even says at the end that they were seeking to destroy Him. We come to our passage this week, unlike what we see in our day today, unlike what we see where people are quick to respond and a quick to flip the accusation around and a quick to respond in the same way as if someone's coming at them, I'm going to come back at them. Rather, what we see this week from our Savior is that His response is quite different. And in fact, it is a response that is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 42. Let's hear the word of the Lord this morning from Matthew 12, beginning in verse 15. Well, we'll stop. We'll back up to verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. You see there in, in verse 14, that the Pharisees conspired against him how to destroy him. And so 15 takes us straight from there, and we see right away that Jesus is not ignorant of this. Jesus understands it. He perceives it. He is very aware of what's 
going on. This is a significant statement because, because Christ is not going around and just, just caught off guard by their accusations. He's not caught off guard by the agenda of the Pharisees, but he knows what they're doing. He knows what they're seeking to carry out. But his response is different than the response of sinful people like us. Where we're quick to accuse, we're quick to defend ourselves, we're quick to get in a defensive posture. Christ, aware of what they were doing, simply withdrew from there. He departed. He left the scene. And we see here in verses 15 through 19 a display of his character, a display of who he is as our sinless Savior. We see here in very much, uh, in very much display, a great display of the fact that, that Jesus was really the antithesis of the Pharisees. We understand that when we looked at Hebrew, or, um, Matthew eleven twenty five to 30, we talked about how the yoke of the Pharisees is hard and weighty and heavy. The end of Matthew, Matthew 23, we talked about how their yoke was oppressive. It weighed down those with legalism, right? And we talked about how, how Christ was completely different. It was an easy and a, a light yoke, a burden that is light, a yoke that is easy. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. We saw the examples of verses 1 to 14 in Matthew 12. And then here we see again that, that Jesus is set in contrast to the Pharisees. The Pharisees who come and they, they feel their, their power fading. They feel threatened by Christ. And so they come at him seeking to accuse him, conspire against him, destroy him. Yet he walks away from them. He steps away. While they were weighing the people down with legalistic burdens, he was teaching and calling us to come to him because his burden is light and his yoke is easy. While they sought to bring conflict and conspiracy, he walked and did the ministry that he had came to do. He set in contrast to them. And this wasn't because he couldn't do anything about it, mind you, right? I mean, Jesus had already displayed previously in Matthew 8 and 9 and into 10 his power and how wonderful he is. He had already displayed this in the calming of the sea, the healing of the lame, the giving of sight to the blind, the rising of the dead, that he had the power to counter their efforts. He has the knowledge of what they're doing. So it's not as though he was ignorant or unable to do anything about it. It just simply wasn't what he was going to do. He withdrew. Time and time again in the Gospel of John, you see him withdrawing or stepping aside. And the reason he gives us for that is he says, my time is not yet come. Christ was on a mission. And that mission was to go to the cross. And until that time came, he would continue to do what he needed to do to accomplish that mission. So we read there in, in verse uh, 15 that he withdrew and many followed him and he healed them all. He carried out his ministry of healing those who came to him. And in verse 16 we read what? That he ordered them not to make him known. It, it's Jesus' concern, what we talked about previously in a couple of different sermons, so we won't go over it again today, but what many call the messianic secret. That in these moments, Jesus said, don't tell anybody who I am. It was his concern and focus to not generate this big following that was just following Jesus for what they could get from him. Just following him for the benefits, for the healing, the blessings. 
but he wanted to make sure it was very clear that they were following him because of who he was as God's own Messiah, the, the one who was anointed, who came to save. Not the way people might perceive necessarily, but as a Messiah who was the Lamb of God who would give his own life for the sins of many that we read in Hebrews 9 earlier. Now verse 17, we come to this statement. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. You should remember, if you've been with us, that, that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, right? Matthew's writing to, to Jews, and as he does, he's constantly bringing them back to Old Testament scriptures to point out that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that God has sent forth. And so time and time again, Matthew keeps drawing us back to say, this is to fulfill the Old Testament. This is to fulfill what was written. And so He's doing the same thing here. He's making a point to his Jewish audience. He's bringing them back to Isaiah, Isaiah 42, 1 to 4, is where this passage is taken from. He's continuing to say that he is the one God has sent. He is the chosen servant of the Lord. And when it says this in verse 17, I, I'm studying, I, I just said, what this what? What's he talking about? This. Well, this is talking about his response. The way he responds to the Pharisees' accusations is exactly in line with the way Isaiah 42 said that the the Messiah would respond. He's responding in the same way. So if you read verse 18 to 21, the way he responds to the Pharisees' accusations, conspiracies, and seeking to destroy him is exactly the way the Messiah was prophesied to carry himself and to respond. So in verse 18 and 19, what you have there is you have a description of the chosen servant of the Lord. You have him described as one who was chosen, beloved, well-pleasing to God, one in which the Spirit was upon him, one whom would proclaim justice to the Gentiles. We see that all throughout Matthew, don't we? Reminded in Matthew three sixteen and 17 at the baptism of Jesus, when John baptizes Jesus, as immediately when he was baptized, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son whom I am well pleased. We'll see that again in Matthew seventeen five at the transfiguration where a voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved Son whom, with whom I am well pleased. Please listen to him. Time and time again, we have that testimony from the Father to the people about the Son, that this is my beloved Son, my chosen one, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew's continually been showing the mission of Christ. It's not just to the Jews, but he's sent to the Gentiles. So when we read there that, that he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, and then later in verse 21, that his, in his name the Gentiles will hope. This is something we've continually been seeing in Matthew, and we will continue to see Matthew working out. When you think about the fact that God's mission includes Gentiles, we started there with Jesus' genealogy. Gentiles listed in the genealogy strategically, intentionally by Matthew to show that Jesus is not just the Messiah to the Jews, but to the nations. We consider the wise men from the East, those who are not Jews, some of the first to see the incarnate Lord, the Son of God. And then we think forward to the Great Commission. 
that we're to go unto all peoples, all nations, making disciples. The Missio Dei, the mission of God, is to all people. Verse 19, we have here a direct reference to Jesus' response to the Pharisees. He does not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He doesn't respond and say, hey, they're accusing me. Look what they're doing. Did you hear what they're saying? He doesn't stand there and just argue with them in this moment. But knowing this, being aware of this, he withdrew from there. We see the character of our Messiah in fulfillment to Isaiah 42. I want us to spend the rest of our time thinking about verses 20 and 21. Verse 20 is a deeply encouraging and comforting verse of Scripture. It's one that God has used in my own life to comfort me and get me through some of the lowest points in my life. I, I, would, I would just recommend to you, I'll, I'll read a couple quotes from this in a little bit, but Richard Sibbs wrote a book called The Bruised Reed. And in perhaps one of the most challenging periods in my life, one of the deepest valleys I've walked through as a Christian, his treatment of Matthew 12, 20 was so good for my soul, so encouraging to my soul. I would recommend it to you as a read if you come away from the sermon today thinking I needed to hear Verse 20, that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. This verse is a a picture of Jesus' compassion as the chosen servant. And there's two people he talks about here. There's two people he, he references, two types of people. The first one is the bruised reed. The bruised reed, it refers to the one who is broken or, or crushed. And an example of how this is used in Scripture is in Isaiah 36.6 where we read that Behold, you are trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of, many, of, of any man who leans on it. Right? So the, the description, the idea there, the vision is that this, this staff that should be strong, that you can depend on, that you can lean on, that you can find uh, strength in, well, it's bruised, it's broken, it's crushed, it's, it's bent over. And if you lean on it, it will injure you. It's it's in a place where you shouldn't trust in it. You just cast it aside. Don't depend on it. It's a bruised reed. Well, many would say and look and say, well, the the bruised reed is just to be trampled upon. It's just to be pulled out. It's to be done away with. It's like bananas. You guys eat bruised bananas? Bananas. I walk across and walk across the kitchen. I remember one day I was walking through the kitchen and I wanted a banana and I looked and they looked terrible. They were all bruised and nasty and I don't know, they really taste that much different. They're a little texture, right? I was like, I'm not going to eat that. So I started to throw it away. Well, Steph's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to throw the bananas away. They're bruised. Don't do that. Don't cast them away. Don't throw them away. Why not? I'm going to make banana bread out of them. And she made banana bread and I was a happy man for the next week with my cup of coffee right? Something that was bruised that I was ready to cast away, to to get rid of. She saw great value in and and did not want it cast aside. The Pharisees, in contrast, would see that which was bruised and cast it away, walk by it, give it no regard. 
Now, Jesus is not the one that does that. The bruised reed would be one who is beaten down by the sins of life. That sin has wreaked havoc in your life. Maybe it's a, a sin that you battle with, that you've confronted time and time again, and you just it seems like you fall to it over and over, and you come in and you're just bruised. You're weak. You're hurting. You're broken. Or perhaps it's just bruised by the trials of life. That, that life has been so hard the last few months or the last few years. Or perhaps you're sitting there going, it's not years, it is all of my life. I'm bruised, I'm broken, I don't even know why I'm sitting here this morning. If you only knew. Or perhaps even the immediate context, just the one who's bruised and battered by the weight of religious legalism. That the context of your life is when you come and you, you hear the word of the Lord or you go in and you walk into churches, perhaps the problem was you didn't hear much of the word of the Lord, but you heard a lot of legalism, you heard a lot of traditions, a lot of you've got to do this and you've got to do that, and you leave exhausted and tired and you don't want to go because it's just this weight, this burdening and weighing down upon your shoulders. But I want you to see in light of that, in light of the reality that I know there are people sitting here this morning who would say, that's me, I'm bruised. I'm bruised. I'm bruised because of sin in my life. I'm bruised because of just the context, my history with religion. I'm, I'm bruised because of what I've been through, the trials of life. I'm just bruised. I want you to see what is the disposition of Christ? What does he do? Does he trample you down? Does he crush you? Does he go ahead and finish breaking you off and casting you aside? Does he cast you into the furnace? No. A bruised reed, he will not break. Why? Do you remember Matthew eleven twenty eight? 28? Because he is gentle and lowly, a God of great mercy and grace and compassion. A bruised reed, he will not break. You, you, you want examples of this? You remember the, the leper of Matthew 8, 1 to 4, one who certainly is cast aside, one who certainly is thought little of by the religious elite, who's neglected, who's ignored, who's cast out, who's bruised. And Jesus touches him and heals him. A bruised reed, he will not break. Or what about Luke 15? In Luke 15, 11 to 32, we had the, the story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. A, a son who is bruised by his own decisions. Is bruised by his own rejection of his father's plan. He leaves, he, he goes, and he makes foolish, sinful decisions. And he finds himself at rock bottom. And he drags himself humbly and in utter humiliation back to his home, back to his father. He's bruised. And we have in Luke 15, what we have, the father's reaction is a display of the abundant and abounding grace and mercy and compassion of the Lord. In response to the son who's bruised, we have the extravagant grace of God toward us. Or about John 4. In John 4, the Samaritan woman at the well, the woman who is on her sixth man, Jesus doesn't cast her aside. But Jesus 
ministers to her, speaks truth unto her, and he reveals his identity to her. A bruised reed he did not crush. Or consider in John 8, when the Pharisees bring the woman caught in adultery before the Lord. Again, a bruised reed he did not crush. What did he do? He defended her in that moment and said, go and sin no more. Cease from your sin. A bruised reed he did not crush. You need to know today that if you would sit here and say, I'm a bruised reed for this reason or that reason, you need to know that Jesus Christ is full of tender mercy. He is gentle and lowly and a bruised reed he will not crush. The second person, who's the second person he refers to here? He says, the bruised reed I will not crush and what? The smoldering wick, the smoldering wick he will not quench. The smoldering wick is a wick that's about to go out, right? We live in the era of abundant candles, right? There's probably 8,438,000 candles represented among the ladies in this room. It's your favorite gift at Christmas, and it smells our homes up. You're very familiar with what a smoldering wick looks like, a wick that just has a faint glimmer to it. You can't even see it. It's, it's not producing any scent of the candle. It's not melting anything. The only way you even know it's there, that it's smoldering, is if you turn off all the lights in the house and look and go, oh, there's, there, that must have been burning earlier. Or it's trying to, there's just a little faint glimmer of light there, smoldering. Oh, I think I might see just a little smoke rising. It's a smoldering wick. It's one that people might go, oh, well, let's put it out. It's useless. It's pointless. Cast it away. It's not doing anything. It's not providing us any light. It's not providing any scent. The smoldering wick is a reference to one who is weak in faith. Just a little, a little glimmer of grace. Perhaps in the midst of a, an abundance of sin. In the midst of abundance of sin, there's just a glimmer of grace. Rather than the one that's a, a burning, bright, strong, heat-producing flame of faith, it's the one that says, my faith is weak. As, as a matter of fact, I come in this morning and my faith is so weak that I'm barely holding on. I just don't know. Maybe it's weak because you're full of doubts. Maybe it's weak because of the weight of sin in your life. An abundance of reasons. There's a small spark present. And you would say, I wish there was a flame there. I, I, I wish I could be like that guy over there. I mean, look how strong his faith is. I wish I could be like that girl over there. I mean, she has such strong faith. I just don't have it. I'm weak. I'm weak. 
the beautiful truth you need to know is that a glimmer of faith is a treasure of grace in Christ. A glimmer of faith is a treasure of grace. Christ does not quench the smoldering wick. He does not look and go, oh, your, your faith is, I'm sorry, it's just too small. Psst. No more. His disposition is that he is gentle and lowly. I love the way Thomas Watson wrote about this. In writing about the smoldering wick, he said this, he said, Though there is only a spark of grace with much sin, Christ will not put out the spark. He will not blow out the spark of grace, but he will blow it up. He will increase it into flame. He will make this smoldering wick a burning taper. By way of example, he says the disciples' faith was at first only small. We read that they forsook Christ and fled in Matthew 26. Here, he says, there was a smoldering wick. But Christ did not quench that little grace, but he cherished it and animated it. Christ will not quench the beginnings of grace because a little grace is precious as well as more grace. A small pearl is of much value. The greatest flame of zeal was once only a smoldering wick. I I would say if you just went around and polled those of you in here this morning who would say, I'm weak. I have a weak faith this morning. I've been struggling so with anxiety and I've been battling depression and I've been racked with guilt and regret. I'm just weak. I don't know that I can ever be strong like that lady or that man. I I would say if you took a poll and just said, hey, those who are strong in faith, were you ever weak? I would say everyone in here would say absolutely. Absolutely. See, we begin with a small glimmer of grace, a small faith. And we go through periods where, for whatever reason, we find ourselves in a place where we say, I'm weak. But in those moments, Christ does not quench it. He does not smother it. He does not put it out. We think of the disciples in Matthew 8. You remember the storm comes upon them and they cry out, the the very Son of God is laying in the boat with them. He wakes up and what does He say? You have little faith. He doesn't then go, all right, out of here and cast them over the edge of the boat. He doesn't say, you have little faith, you're you're done, you're gone. I need 12 new guys. This is ridiculous. No, He stands up and He rebukes creation, increasing their faith. Their fear is transferred from the storm to the Lord. Or about Mark 9, 24, when the the man brings his son to be healed. And Jesus looks at him and says, "I, I can do it if you believe. With God, all things are possible. And what is the man's response? Oh, I have strong faith. I I certainly believe. What is his response? I I believe, help my unbelief. 
He's very aware of the weakness of his faith. He's very aware that the faith he has is small. I believe, help my unbelief. I want my son healed. So Jesus heals him. And we think of Luke 24 when Jesus appears to his disciples. The risen Lord appears to his disciples. And, and what do we read? They're filled with this great, strong faith. No, we read that they're troubled. We, we read of weak faith, troubling, arising in their hearts. Again, he doesn't cast them aside. He doesn't say, this is incredible. Everything you saw me do, and now you saw me die, and here I'm standing before you, yet you're troubled? What's wrong with you guys? No, he says, okay, I want you to see my nail-pierced hands. I want you to see my nail-pierced feet. I want you to see my side. Now let's eat together. And he dines with them. He does not snuff them out. Or what about Peter? There's a good example of some weak faith. In the moment where his faith should be strong, in the moment where he has a chance to stand firm, in the moment where he has a chance to bear testimony of his Lord, he denies him. He turns his back on him. He rejects him. Weak faith. Does Christ snub him out? Does Christ cast him aside? Does Christ say, I told you so? I told you it was going to happen. What's wrong with you? No. Christ sits him down and says, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He gives him greater responsibility. He invites him to eat breakfast with him. He's not cast him aside. Listen, you need to know as you gather today and, and you gather bruised and beaten down, you gather and your faith is fragile, that the call of Christ is come to me. I will give you Rest, for I am gentle and lowly. Come to me. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. A bruised reed I will not crush. A smoldering wick I will not quench. Come to Him. Trust Him. Throw yourself upon Him. The reality that you need to understand is that there is great temptation in this moment. You come and you, you gather and you gather and say, I have weak faith. You gather and say, I'm bruised, I'm broken, I'm tattered, I'm barely even here. And you know what? There's two temptations that I think are really real in that moment. One temptation is just to turn away from God and to fix it with worldly things or worldly ideas or worldly, worldly uh, paths. Perhaps that means numbing the pain of, of the bruising with alcohol and drugs, trying to just ignore it or forget it, just trying to numb it. Or maybe it's numbing it by binge-watching a show so that it just gets your mind off of everything else and you just get entranced in this Netflix show so you don't have to think about it anymore. You're just numbing yourself to it. Or maybe it's numbing it and getting rid of it and trying to find solutions with, with self-help books or plans or strategies or, or dieting to try to make yourself look better to match this picture of who you think you should be or finding man's way out of the situation. Well, this is hard and this stinks. It's not what I thought it was. So here's the solution. And it's the solution, not God's solution, but it's man's solution. You're going to run after that. You run away from God instead of to God. 
That's where Sibs, he's so insightful, so helpful when he talks about the bruised reed. He says this, he says, what should we learn from this? What should we learn from the fact that it says a bruised reed he will not crush? What do we learn from that? He says, what should we learn but to come boldly to the throne of grace in all our grievances? Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? What's he talking about there? He said, we recall, what do we learn? We come to the throne of grace. Throne of the grace. Why is Christ at the throne of grace? The only reason he's there at the throne of grace is because there's sinners who are in need of grace. That's the only reason he's there. For us, for sinners. He doesn't have to show grace to the Father or the Holy Spirit. Just grace to us, sinners redeemed by his grace. He says, what do we learn? We should come boldly before that throne in all of our grievances. Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? Are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him. And take not Satan's counsel, Sib says. Don't listen to that temptation. Don't listen to that and say, you know what, you're so bruised, you're so weak, you need to leave, you need to flee, you need to get away from God. He's just going to come down on you with his heavy hand of punishment because you're not who you should be. You're bruised. You're worthless. So just leave. That's Satan. That is fleshly temptation. That's the message of the world. The call of Christ is come unto me. Come unto me. A bruised reed I will not crush. The second temptation is just turning away from God's people. The first would be turn away from God himself. Second would be turn away from God's people. It's that mindset of my, my faith is struggling, so I'm not as good or valuable as the guy over there whose faith is strong. I, I shouldn't be here. I'm not going to be here. Or it's that mentality of I'm so bruised and crushed, I'm, I'm an embarrassment. I, I can't even show my face at church. If they only knew, I, I'm not going. I mean, what would they say? What would they say? Reject those temptations. Reject them. Come unto the Lord. Turn to the Lord who, in Psalm 56.8, it describes the Lord as one who keeps count of my tossings and wonderings. He puts my tears in his bottle. In Psalm 147, 1 to 6, we read that he gathers the outcasts. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up your wounds. He lifts up the humble. Why? Because of his abundant power. It draws together God's mercy and power all in one place. In Isaiah 40, 10 through 11, he's the shepherd who gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them in his bosom and gently leads those that are with young. In Isaiah 57, 15, He's the one who dwells with the one who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Why? To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. In Isaiah 61.1, we read, He has sent me, why? To bind up the brokenhearted. This is the text that Jesus reads in Luke 4, 18 and 19, where he's in the, the temple and they give him the scroll and he opens up Isaiah and he reads that passage. And he says, this is me. This is fulfilled in your midst. He binds up the brokenhearted. In Lamentations 3, 22 to 24, we read that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Every morning they're new. In Ezekiel 34, 15 to 16, 
He looks and he sees how his, pe- how his people have not been cared for as they should. They're, they're bruised, they're broken, they're manipulated, they're, they're taken advantage of. What does he say? He says, I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. Listen, the call is to turn to the Lord. Because as the contemporary ad campaign says, he gets us. But you know what the thing is with that? That campaign falls way short. He does indeed get us. He indeed gets who we are. But it's not just in a way to say, hey, he relates to you. He gets you, bro. He understands. Praise the Lord, the the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ really does get us. You, He really does get us. He gets that you're bruised by sin, by life's decisions, by trials of life, by religiosity. He gets that you come in today barely holding on to a faint glimmer of faith and you're struggling through life. He gets it. But you know what he also gets? He also gets that you're a sinner and a rebel just like I am. He gets the fact that you cannot make yourself right with God on your own. He gets the fact that you can't fix your own problems. He gets the fact that you can't live a holy life on your own. He gets the fact that you and I deserve the wrath of God Almighty. He gets that. He totally gets it. But the good news, right? The good news, the truth of the gospel, and this is where that campaign misses it. You go to their website, it's not there. It's not there. The good news is that he gets us and he died for us. That's the good news. Not just that he can relate and understand and go, oh yeah, I get you, man. No, the good news is that he gets us so he died for us, that we might be reconciled in our relationship with God. That is the good news. That's the fact that, you know what, it's not just that he gets us, but he did something about it. That is what we need to hear. That's what we need to know. That's why we can look and we can find great assurance and comfort from the fact that a bruised reed he will not crush and a smoldering wick he will not quench because he does indeed get us and he does something about it and he calls us to come to him because he is gentle and lowly. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He didn't just get us and set an example. He got us and died for us. 20 and 21, here's where we see this in this passage, right? We see this in the passage that says that the end goal, the end result of God's chosen servant is what? He brings justice to victory, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Our hope is in the fact that Jesus Christ brings justice to victory. Justice here is, is, is simply is in reference to the full righteousness of God being worked out, but on full display, being worked out as it rightly should be. So how does, how does justice coincide with mercy? How does the, the justice of God coincide with the mercy of the gentle and lowly Savior? Can the two things coexist? Well, absolutely they can. 
And we see an example, if you want to just write down for later, but Isaiah 30, 18 is a really pretty example where it just talks about it all in one verse. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. He's waiting to show mercies, waiting to show grace. Why? Because he is a God of justice. He does what is right. Justice, mercy, grace, all a part of who God is. Listen, the, the reality for us is that we're all bruised by sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve God's wrath. That's the reality. The question is, what's God going to do about it, right? Is he going to show justice or are he going to show mercy? That's the predicament. That's where man finds himself. Because we know God is a just God. We know God's holy. We also know God is gracious and mercy and loving. So what's he going to do? How does that work out? How do, the, how do they both come together? Oh, that's the beauty of the cross, friend. It's the beauty of the cross. Because on the cross, justice and mercy meet. On the cross, we see a beautiful display of both God's mercy and God's grace. When the sinless Son of God dies as our substitute to atone for us, to pay for us, we see both the justice and mercy of God. We see and we watch and we behold the gentle and lowly Savior dying on the cross, giving himself for sinners as a demonstration of God's love. But in that, in that same moment, when we see Christ doing that, in that very same moment, what do we see? We see the holy wrath of God justly being poured out upon the Son of God. Poured out in all his dread and terror is poured out upon this same gentle and lowly Savior. We see the justice and the mercy of God on the cross. It's on the cross that justice is brought to victory. It's brought to victory. I want you just to, to hear this. You remember Romans 3? Some of you guys remember Romans 3, 21 to 26. When you think about God's grace and his mercy and his justness displayed on the cross, listen to what it says. And remember, justice is the perfect outworking of God's righteousness, right? As it should rightly be seen and displayed, right? Now listen. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now listen, here we go. Remember, what did Matthew say? Justice is brought to victory. How is justice brought to victory? It was... Sorry, I lost my place there. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that, what? So that he might be just and 
the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. We see on the cross the beautiful grace of God and the justice of God. The justice of God. The one who displayed justice and the one who is the justifier. All in one beautiful moment on the cross. So how do we know? How do we know that this one Christ will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick? This is what I want to leave you with today. The reason we know is because what Thomas Watson says in the godly man's picture. You know what he reminds us of? He says this, a bruised reed resembles a bruised Savior. How do we know? It's in the very nature of who he is. And a bruised reed is not something that God looks at and goes, what in the world? But a bruised reed resembles a bruised Savior. I mean, think back all the way to Genesis 3. Do you remember the first glimmer of hope that we're given after the fall? Do you remember what they said? Genesis 3.15. Satan would bruise his heel. Oh, (laughs) but guess what? He's going to crush your head. The Savior's heel is going to be bruised. But then we skip down to Isaiah 53 and we don't have time to read the whole chapter. Go back and read Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the Messiah, the bruised Savior. Listen, he was despised, he was rejected, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was despised again in verse 4. He was smitten by God, afflicted. He was pierced, he was crushed and bruised for our iniquities. In verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted. Oppression and judgment came upon him. In verse 10, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. He's put him to grief when his soul made an offering for guilt. Oh, but the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, it says. Will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. We find hope today that Jesus himself was bruised to heal those who are bruised. That's where our hope lies. So if you come in today and you say, I'm bruised, I I don't know what else to do, I can't take it, I can't bear it anymore, you need to know that your bruising resembles the Savior who is bruised and that that Savior was bruised so that he might heal you who are bruised. You need to know that today. Our hope in life and death is in Christ, in our bruised Savior. Our our hope is not in our own strength, it's not our wisdom, it's not our righteousness, our deeds, it's not in how good of a dad I am or how good of a husband I am, how good of a pastor I am. It's not in any of that. It's not in what my abilities and achievements are. It's not in having a perfect family. It's not in running a perfect business. It's not in running and growing a great church. It's not in living a life full full of joy and free of pain and bruising. It's not 
and, and found in even having a faith that's always strong and never weak and never struggles. That's not where our hope lies. Our hope lies in Christ and in Christ alone. And so we close today singing that. That our hope is in Christ forevermore. He is our hope in life and death. So when, he's, when you're bruised and your faith is weak, would you hear the call of Christ and look to him and find your hope in him? Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you today. We come as those bruised and we come as those weak and smoldering. But God, thankfully we come to the one who will not crush us who are bruised and will not quench the one who is smoldering. So God, we look to you and we confess this morning as we close that our hope is in you and in you alone. It's not in anything else. So through the trials of life, the ups and downs, the valleys and the mountaintops, God, our hope, our trust is in you. We look to you this morning. God, I pray for friends and brothers and sisters here, God, today who are bruised, they're hurting. And I pray that they would find great comfort and great strength in you today. And the fact that you will not crush them, but you bind up the brokenhearted. And you draw them to yourself. And you care deeply for them. You show mercy to them every day. God, I pray for those with just a, a glimmer of grace, glimmer of faith this morning. God, I pray that you would fan that, blow it up, increase their faith, cast their gaze upon you, Lord, that their hope would not be in how strong their faith is, but their hope would be in how great a Savior you are. Now we commit this time to you. We worship you, Lord Jesus. Amen.